Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. Hey, welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I am your host, Mitch Robbins, the founder and managing director here at the Anthony Michael Group. I am excited about today's show. It is the first of many to come in this space. We are talking with Mr. Philip McDonald, who is a veteran health economics and reimbursement executive in his own right. For over the last 25 years, Philip has literally helped hundreds of millions gain access to proper care. He's worked in this space for strategics like Medtronic and Abbott. He's worked for Siemens. He's worked for startups like Virtos Medical and has done an unbelievable job as far as, like I said, helping those in need get access to the right care. Uh, the guy is no stranger to formal education, either holding a doctorate in health economics and a master's in healthcare administration. I'm excited to get into today's show with Philip Story. Philip, without further ado, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Mitch. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. We've been putting this together for, for a little bit now, and I'm excited that the day is here. And what I want to do for our listeners is really go through your story. You know, the purpose of these types of shows is to help others understand what it took for you to get to where you are today. Uh, we'll talk about kind of what the future might look like for you as well. But really, to be able to kind of shape the story of where you're at professionally, I think we've also got to incorporate the personal aspect as well. And uh, if it's cool with you, I'd love to go back in time and first and foremost, understand more about your early formative years. Where'd you grow up and uh, what was your family life like? Sure. I grew up in uh, central Illinois, or as they say in Illinois downstate, outside of Peoria, Illinois, in a city that was about 10,000 people. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom and my father had a podiatric practice in, um, in Peoria. Did you say a pediatric practice? Podiatric, sorry, podiatrist. Oh, podiatrist. Okay, cool. Are you one of one, or do you have siblings as well? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I'm in the middle. There's three of us, so I'm the uh, the middle child. How many boys and how many girls? Younger uh, sister and an older brother. Okay, interesting. I ask because I'm one of three. I'm the oldest, but I'm one of three brothers, so that's why I was curious. Gotcha. And you and I, we talked offline. We have uh, we have Illinois in common. I grew up north of uh, Chicago in the suburbs, and and you grew up down by Peoria. So that's awesome. What what held your interest outside of class when you were growing up? Uh, you know, it's funny. My mother got me started playing violin at the age of four. And I would say that that was purgatory for me, but it actually allowed me to enjoy music even to this very day. I, I ended up having to play all through high school. So I was on the U Symphony in Peoria, which was enjoyable, but I don't play it anymore. But um, so that was kind of a reprieve. But I would say I did the typical sports, track, baseball, and football. Enjoyed football immensely during high school days. That's awesome. I love your story about the music piece because it resonates so much with what's going on in my life right now. So first and foremost, I'm very into music myself. I played professionally for years in a rock band. I thought I was going to be a rock star. For real, I left my full-time job to do so. But growing up, I had a buddy who was put in piano lessons by his mom and absolutely hated her for it, despised it, didn't want anything to do with it. And he is very naturally gifted. And years later, he's like, I am so grateful that my mom pushed me to stick with it. And here I am with my kids, six and eight. I don't want to go to piano lessons. I said, I do not care. 
you're going to piano lessons because one day you're going to thank me for it. So that's really cool. Did you ever go back to your mom and explain, hey, you know what? Thanks for doing that. I actually did. And I said that only in to my father as well, because they knew how painful it was for me to do my daily lessons or for at least for them to push me to do the daily lessons and listen to it. So as much as I may have um, complained, I did thank them later. That's awesome. So, you know, you mentioned that your dad was a podiatrist and when you got to college, first and foremost, I didn't mention your bachelor's degree. So what's your bachelor's degree in? Actually, it's double major in political science and history, but it was, it's kind of a pre-level. No, I was going to say, so when you were in college, did you already have an idea of the type of field that you wanted to go into? I'm just trying to follow your track of how you ended up ultimately getting into the space because what we should also make mention of is for a long time, you worked for HCA, right? In the, on the hospital side. I did. And it kind of, I never would have known that would have been the case, but I think going back to your original question about how I got into it, it's in terms of college. You know, my dad was a podiatrist in Peoria. I would hear about how he would treat a lot of diabetic patients when he came home from work, but also the fits and giggles he was having with the major payer in the marketplace, which is Caterpillar. And they would they would pay for him to amputate the foot rather than save the foot with wound care. And he actually went to a leper's colony outside of New Orleans during that time and learned how to treat medics in a more effective way so they wouldn't lose the limb. And for dad, from a payment mechanism to get paid to amputate rather than save the patient a quality of life or even save Caterpillar dollars and not having to hire a temporary worker or rehab or whatever it may be, I just found that there was just kind of a connection with me in medicine. His dad was actually a physician in Peoria as well. So I had this kind of feeling, whether pushed through the family element or not, to go into medicine, but I knew I wasn't going to be a practitioner. I wanted to be more on the creative side, more the administrative side. So I was very interested in law. So I, that political science and history kind of gave me that curriculum for pre-law. Um, and then past changed a little bit because during my undergrad, I ended up being the assistant to the 11th, to a CEO of the 11th largest health system at the time in Memphis. And I learned a lot. DRGs were just coming out, so that dates me. But I remember him coming into the office one time, Mitch, and saying, the board's upset, DRGs are going in place, we're going to lose millions next year, and I've got to figure out how we're going to get our arms around this. And it just, it just, just hit me broadsided. It was like, man, that's, that's fascinating to me. What is a hospital in a large market, competitive or otherwise, formidable in the, in the market they're in? And I took that, I'm like, man, the administrative side is just, has grabbed me. So as you said, master's, I did a hospital administration in that. Uh, by the time I retired, then payment reform was a big part of this. I mentioned the DRGs and the impact, but payment reform in terms of what I got out of the master's program, I was very interested in getting in the health economic side and how providers at this point, still hospitals were going to deal with payment reform that was still being created, managed Medicare markets and all that. So I decided to pursue a doctor in health economics, dovetailed with the hospital administration background. And so I did that. And that's kind of what lay the, the groundwork. I didn't know it at the time, but for this role later on. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, you've been an executive for a while. You've held very high level positions with a lot of responsibility for many different organizations. I'm curious, you know, when you look back, what are some of the pivotal roles or the responsibilities that you ended up taking on that eventually you think helped continue to help you rise up through the ranks and take on greater levels of, of leadership responsibility? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight three areas. One is public and the other two are private on the industry side. The public side was when I got my doctorate, 
my dissertation was around rate regulation, so payment reform, and how hospitals or providers themselves were dealing with the changes and how they remain competitive. Or more importantly, how from a state standpoint, how they actually manage expansion of healthcare services within localities. So I was actually asked, uh, one of my professors had connected me with the, uh, the governor of California's office. They were very interested at the time about certificate of needs for ambulatory surgical centers. They're growing tremendously. They wanted to slow down the growth because they, what they saw was there was increased costs of healthcare where a lot of these pop-up boxes were going. And so my dissertation laid the foundation, but it, what to answer your question, it gave me a perspective of the public policy side about how states were actually, not the federal government, but the states were trying to deal with higher healthcare costs, especially in California that were innovative in terms of how they were coming up and dealing with even managed care. So that, that in and of itself, from a strategic standpoint, dealing with markets, dealing with different care delivery systems gave me kind of a foundation of, of a subset of strategy. Uh, the other two I mentioned are more on the industry side. So I, if you were to tell me I'd be doing this today, 25 years ago, I would laugh at you. It just evolved into what I, my first job at HCA was to work with companies, their biggest vendors, J&J, GE, of products that they were just about to release to the market. And because we were a formidable player for them, I took those products and I measured the clinical and economic utility of those in respect of service lines, whether it was a drug or device or otherwise, to get ahead of as a, as a provider for our facilities in terms of how we were going to actually use that modality effectively within respective marks. And so that then gave me the clinical side of a device of a care setting, marrying those together and measuring the clinical and economic utilities and how HCA just looked at that. And that then morphed into going into industry. And I would say Bayer and Siemens were formidable for me because Bayer hired me to do the same thing I was doing at HCA. And that was looking at a product and how to, I wouldn't say spin, but message clinically and economically the benefit of that device or widget or commodity and help differentiate it against a competitor that a provider like Intermountain or Kaiser is already using, right, in its formulary. But what I learned from that is that there were so many steps ahead of that game that I needed to control for and ask Bear to implement. And that was taking a role like this, market access, not really much of a role, but reimbursement, getting the code, getting the right studies in place, but asking them to dovetail this role in R&D. So I was able to do that with Bayer. They actually took my structure and, and implemented it worldwide, but it allowed me to even get involved at phase zero. What's your idea? What's your plan? How does it, are there codes out there? What's coverage look like? What are the hurdles going to be put in place? What are the clinical studies you need? So that helps kind of give me the structure of what this role would eventually be, but what was really required for companies even back then to say, hey, you really need to consider this. One of the things that came out of that was there was a, uh, a blood assay that was very unique. Um, it measured iron in early blood cells coming out of the bone marrow. If you think about it, epigen, Lance Armstrong, doping was very big back during this time. This assay allowed for the better understanding of how much epigen was really impacting on iron storage for the body. So I knew immediately I needed to do an economic study, went to Mayo because there's a major KOL there, got a study going in place. Then I realized I needed a code for this. So I worked with the American College of Pathologists and getting the CPT code. And then once that was out of the gate, then I had hurdles with payers, particularly um, Blue Cross at the time. And so coding coverage and payment were immediately created and uh, done and achieved in this short short span. And so I ended up doing an economic uh, presentation at a Bayer Pharma event in Vermont 
The guy from Pharma saw me, uh, knew that health economics was important. This is back in 2002, and he's and he went St. Jude Medical, and from there he pulled me over, and then I was really able to expand this role to what it is really today. So, so I'm hearing a lot of scrappiness. I'm also hearing that you have the diversity of experience in your background as far as working on the provider side and then coming to the industry and then using both sides to work with payer piece obviously helped you a lot. But I want to dig a little bit further because there's many people out there that aspire to be an executive over their functional area or over the whole company for that matter. And just because you aspire to something doesn't necessarily mean that you pull it off. And so you could have had all this experience and still not necessarily risen to the to the level that you have in the industry. What else do you attribute it to? Why, why does somebody rise to become an executive and another person tries but can't do it? Well, you know, I would say that, you know, this tenacity, right? And then creativity, but also the the love of strategy, the love of the environment, the love for kind of addressing the five-year horizon and what you need to do to help a company achieve not just now, but plan for the future. And I would say a lot of people are meant for that, but it also depends upon the role. This role in and of itself, to your point about the scrappiness, when you realize that you need all these components that's not typical of, of a commercial organization, especially in med device. Pharma was a little bit early on and they were doing the right things because they had to, right? They had to prove to the federal government to get on formulary to payers what the price was going to look like. Med device was different and they were very slow. This role wasn't appreciated. So the scrappiness was really getting in, pushing the idea, being respected, being able to communicate it in a layman's perspective because they're not used to, typically you always say if somebody starts talking about reimbursement, their eyes glaze over. And you learn that early on. And I would also say, understanding the sales and the marketing side, respecting those people, respecting the clinicians that they're marketing to. So I would say it's really understanding your strengths and tying that to the need of the organization in this role that benefits that. You've got the typical attributes of accountability, trust, and collaboration, but it's really, there's a lot of strategy behind this role and be able to pursue that and push it with the right people and be respected of it is what's key. When you got your first VP position, was it, I apologize because I don't, can't remember off the top of my head, was it that you were promoted internally or you moved organizations and that was your first VP role? I moved organizations, yeah. It was with Endogastric Solutions in the GI space. Okay. And so you had, would you say that looking at the scope that you came from to get to that position, was it a stretch for you where you take on more responsibility or was really changing title with a smaller organization? You know, it was a ladder and it wasn't a stretch because this role, and I say this even today, it's a player coach role. You're going to have, you're going to build a team, even at St. Jude is a good example where we, not only did we support sales in this role, but we also supported the product divisions and there were four of them. But because these are lean and small teams, you have to, you can't just lead and let the others do it. You have to get involved, right? And that's part of championing the, the department, championing the roles and being respected by others in that position. So the player coach mentality is something that I still take to this very day. The strategy setting is part of that. So it wasn't a stretch. It was more of working for a, a smaller organization that felt that saw the need for this, right? But it, it allowed me to actually expand out more of the opportunity with that, right? Bigger department, bigger budgeting, and so forth. What's the largest team you've led? Department of 15 with direct reports, totaling uh, uh, six. Okay. So decent-sized team, and you know you have had the opportunity to at least understand what top performance looks like compared to average performance based on the teams that you've led. What do you think is the differentiators? From what you've seen, especially in this space, you know, health econ, reimbursement, payer relations, 
that piece especially? Well, I think this also goes back even to my foundation, my foundation in terms of how I look at this role. Uh, we talk about tenacity. We talk about accountability and respect. But we also talk about strategy. Strategy is so important in this in this job. Period. Uh, both internally as well as how you address the external, or even understanding of outside U.S. markets. Right. But it's people that hit the ground running that do not take no for an answer, particularly in market access, that just keep driving, but drive in an eloquent, respectful way, meaning that they don't offend their internal stakeholders and they at least retain the relationships that they have with the external stakeholders like medical directors of payer groups or KOLs that they have to work with or medical society personnel. Also, I think this role has always been remote. So you're dealing with people that are working out of their office, but traveling and have responsibilities in their own domains. So you understand what's at play. You know who's doing the work and you know who's not doing the work. I think lastly, I talked about not taking no for an answer, especially as market access became more involved in this role of reimbursement, of taking the elements of coding and payment, and now dealing with payers that are just stifling opportunity to get your modality covered. You're just going to hear more no's than you're going to hear yes. And it's how you address that no. You got to get up. It's like the old Nike commercial, just play on. And so there are people that I highly respect and have continued to hire because of that mentality. And that's that's who I look for. Those people that just keep driving. People that are passive are not going to be well in this board. They're just not. And, you know, historically, so a couple of things. You can't teach that. I feel that that piece is innate and you either have it or you don't. I even know in my own business, I've seen it firsthand where you either have that piece where you don't. I feel like you can train the rest, but the tenacity piece, the uh, run through walls added to me truly feels like it's, it's DNA. Would you agree or disagree? I would. I would. And I think to that point, you're going to see a lot of that in people and their development, whether you had them, whether you, you didn't work with them before, but you saw what their outputs were in previous positions, but also how they are uh, interviewing right? But more importantly, how you even take a team that you've inherited and better understand what they're strong at and what they're weak at and really pull on the strengths of them and let them just live through it. Just let them do what they want to do and not micromanage it. And those people actually thrive more. And I've had opportunities of working with people just to, um, I don't even have to push them. I'll push them in a way of just exposing them to other things that they haven't done. And just to see them fly is just unbelievable. So yes, it does take that particular DNA, especially in this role, there's policy, you're going to get people that are really, really deep in the weeds in policy. They're not your people, right? They're the passive poet. They just want to understand it and live, enjoy, enjoy that side of it. But no, it, it does take somebody uh, particular with a drive that you don't normally see in others. Which is why historically into these roles, people more often than not have a sales and or marketing background too. Yes. And I was actually going to bring in the sales side. One of the strengths I've seen is people that have actually worked and held the bag and sales, especially on the pharma side, have been great in market access opportunities. They just don't take no for an answer, right? They will stay in that doc's office as long as it takes, but they're, they've been actually the, the best people to lead market access roles. Reimbursement and coding is a little different, different skill set, but again, you need the tenacity in order which to drive a lot of those, uh, a lot of those programs. Philip, what do you think is one of those critical leadership lessons you've either learned the hard way or that you feel that you've taken words of wisdom from somebody else and really applied it? I'm gonna. So I talked about trust and accountability. Yeah. Like, you know, it's funny. I remember right before I was going to defend my dissertation, my my dissertation chair said to me, he "said If you don't know the answer, don't wing it." 
they're going to know. Just tell them you get the answer and you'll get back to them. Man, Mitch, that has stuck with me for so long. And it's it's allowed me not to deal with any of the, the makeup crap or having to defend something I don't know. It's just being very truthful. Learn it, understand it, and go back with the plan and with the directive that you're going to fix the issue, right? That is allowed for better collaboration. I don't know what comes first, but I would say trust is probably formidable, right? But it's allowed me to build relationships internally, which is very important in this role because sometimes marketing and sales do not support or don't have the time to support the needs that a market access reimbursement department needs to help them in the long run, right? But it's being able to show them in a layman's perspective in a trusting environment that you you are the right person for this role and that you're a colleague in the process. So that has always stuck with me. And it's also helped me build those relationships with external people as well. I have formidable relationships with lawyers in multiple boxes in DC, KOLs that may not even serve my need in a current device company because they may be outside that disease space, but still I can lean upon and ask questions and get their support for it. It's just, and you know, it's also having people answer your call, right? You don't want to be um, segregated, but so I would say those, those are the tenets that, I, that I've looked for in terms of how it's helped me in, in a leadership position. You mentioned the trust by acknowledging what you don't know, but the willingness to go be resourceful and find the answer is actually how you build trust versus BSing your way through. And I, you know, my expertise is obviously helping people catalyze their careers and build high-performing teams. And when it comes to interviewing, it's one of the number one things we always say, if you don't know, tell them you don't know, but you better show up and explain to them how you're going to go figure it out and how you're going to find it because of what that demonstrates. And the people who I think try to BS their way through, somebody's always going to know more than you, always, and they can see right through it, right? So I love that piece uh, very much. Um, you quickly lose credibility that way, right? And it's not worth it. Yeah. What do you think is the most significant challenge, you know, in today's market, what do you think the most significant challenge, challenges are in securing market access for, for medical devices? It's a great question. And I'm going to give you two answers. One is from a company's perspective. It's being able to, to know that you need this role earlier than later, period. Whether you're a startup or whether you're a uh, Fortune 500 company, it just needs to be a formidable role in your organization with a leadership position, period. Leadership positions in this space help because it helps not just so the diversity of the role, but also how it's parcel with how you're dealing with, with other silos within the organization, right? Clinical affairs, sales, marketing, everything. It also helps with dovetailing early in R&D that I talked about, also working with clinical affairs to make sure that you have the right studies. So there is the internal piece that in and of itself can be a hurdle, if not respected. So that's what companies need, need to understand and respect. Externally, I have one answer, coverage, coverage, and coverage. It Coverage is getting harder to get, and it's as I go back to the company space and understanding the importance of this role, it's making sure that even from a budget standpoint and ROI perspective, you're out of the gate early on so you're not spending more dollars later. You need to fix the problem and bringing somebody like this into that space that understands coding coverage and payment, taking something early out of R&D or something that's been commercialized and try to fix that issue. To get to the coverage aspect, those are hurdles and that's that's what's important to understand. And Mitch, I gotta, I gotta underscore this coverage is not simple and it doesn't happen overnight. So companies have to understand and respect that this is a long game, period. So those are the hurdles I see. Yeah, and it reminds me of regulatory uh, to begin with as well, is companies not necessarily understanding the importance of a clear regulatory strategy, strategy early and often versus having to double back 
and redo things they should have thought about earlier versus just the R&D aspect, right? Uh, same thing here with market access as far as trying to understand the importance of it upfront early and then also the relationships and the time it takes to establish coverage too. You know what, Mitch? Honestly, great point. Even regulatory for the FDA regulatory side, there's ways in which now Medicare CMS is, is partnering with the FDA on novel devices that are so unique that if a company's going for FDA clearance or approval, if there's ways in which you can show the uniqueness of this, you can actually get ahead of the gate with Medicare because they're seeing the studies that you're using to get the approval, that even payment and coverage can be a fast track in a way for Medicare. And that can save a lot of money and a lot of time. So you're absolutely right, even on the regulatory side. We've Talked about all the experience that you've gained and, and, and kind of um, the opportunity, let's put opportunity in quotes, that you've had to skin your own knees, right? And you learned some things the hard way. Is there anything looking back that you would have perhaps done differently if you could go back in time that perhaps somebody listening uh, could save themselves the trouble from? That's a difficult question, Matt. And it could be, it could either be, you know, a way that you handled something internally. It could be a way that you handled your career transition or something, anything that comes to mind. And if not, that's okay. But I'm, I really am curious. Well, as I said, if you were to tell me I'd be doing this now, 25 years ago, I would laugh, right? Yeah. If I'm right out of the gate with a uh, bachelor's and I want to go into sales, yeah, there's going to be things that I'm going to learn along the way that I'm going to get my knees on that I, I'm going to do better when I get there. I guess the one thing early on that I learned was, is making the complex simpler. And it's because you're working with commercial organizations. No, this isn't a slight in terms of management team or the sales organization or even marketing. They all look at this from a different perspective, particularly on the CEO side. He's looking broad. He or she's looking broad based, right? Now you're having to deal with an area in which is boring, eyes glazed over, right? That now is important to the organization. And I think I learned early on, you can get so caught up in the nomenclature of Medicare speak or regulatory speak, policy speak, that sometimes you're so bent on that mentality that you're speaking the same internally. And that's not good. You're not going to sell yourself well. They're not going to understand it. You're going to be disregarded. So I would say that's something early on that I think people need to understand and adjust too quickly. As far as the understanding of, of how you can start to speak to clarify that, what, what is the piece that you need to understand quickly? How things can get um, almost speaking the same internally and then it's not presented as well externally? Now, I'll give an example. So when I went to Bayer, one of the things that I did was I was in corporate accounts. So I quickly learned sales, right? I never would have thought I was going to be in sales. But what I learned was how they thought, what the quick timelines were in terms of achieving sales opportunities and the customers that they had to deal with and the politics around contracting and everything else. Mm -hmm. It allowed me to look at that perspective, that environment, and talk to that person in that way, right? Somebody who's selling a widget is going to be different than somebody on the hill that's trying to push through a policy agenda, right? Totally two different environments. Nomenclature is totally different. Timelines are different, right? Objectives are different because you've got too many people now on the hill space versus on the sell side, you may have one customer. It's being able to take the elements of coding coverage and payment and putting it in the context that a salesperson can understand it. I got you. Understanding your audience, basically. And, Absolutely. And, yeah. and adapting as necessary. Makes sense. Let me ask you this. Let's pretend that we're at your retirement party. I love this question because it's always interesting to, to hear people's feedback. But we're at your retirement party. Everybody's gathered around, having a great time. Where every, everybody's there to celebrate and honor you. What are you hoping that the people would say about you? I would say this: that I'm going to lay lay the groundwork for this thought based upon my 
how I am as a boss, how I am as a mentor. And that is, I've never lost anybody. Whether I've acquired them through becoming their boss or I built a team, nobody's ever left me. And I would say that because of that and what I, how I am as a boss, that people look at me as a friend first and a boss second, as a mentor, somebody who pushes people to be better than what they were before. Taking their weaknesses and building upon that to make them strengths. I would say one of my, uh, one of my peers actually said to me one time, he said, you know, people, your direct reports, they don't work for you, they work with you. So I would hope that resonates in a way that a general statement of just he was he was more of a friend than a colleague, but in a collegial perspective, I think for me would warm the heart. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Obviously, you've had help along the way, just like we all have. Is there any part, anybody in particular who um, is either a former boss, a mentor, a professor, somebody that you would uh, like to give a shout out to that you think was very instrumental in helping you uh, be the executive that you are today? Yeah, I'll go back to my days at Barrett St. Jude Medical, Mike Zager. Uh, he was on the pharma side, and um, when I was giving that speech at a pharma event in Vermont, he saw me, pushed me aside. He said, you know, we really need this. We need to think about this. We need to be more strategic. We need to be consultative for our customers customers. And what you're doing is just, it really resonates. He saw that opportunity, he hired me at St. Jude. He allowed me to build a team. He allowed me to be creative. He helped forge relationships with other departments, other divisions within St. Jude, and allowed me to kind of create the space that I've, I've done with other organizations from that point forward. He's a true sales and marketing guy, but he also taught me a lot in terms of how to deal with those environments as well, uh, how to think about markets. And just, he's just, in fact, I ended up getting him into one of one of the companies, a smaller company later in life, just knowing that I wanted to work with somebody like him again and certainly he would have been that person and i got the opportunity to do so he just resonates in my mind he's just a great guy that's awesome if i could sum up what i think you're saying is sounds like he he gave you confidence he created a, an environment of empowering you to get things done and at the same time he was instrumental as far as removing obstacles for you to be able to be successful you got it that's awesome that's awesome. All right, man, I'm going to wrap up by asking you last but not least, people who are listening to this and they're inspired by your story and you've obviously been successful, very successful in your own right for a variety of reasons. Any other career or life advice that, that you'd like to somebody who is a, an aspiring leader themselves listening? In this role? In the space? Yeah, let's let's say it that it, that specifically, yes, in the space. I think let me uh, let me start out by just talking about the leadership side. I can't underscore enough never micromanage, don't look for butts in a seat, don't assume that they're doing something when they're not. It's just getting to know your people, understanding how they work, pushing them to strive, understanding how you can be a better boss for them. Don't heavyweight them with pedantical work that doesn't get it, that doesn't help anybody, them in terms of growing or the company in terms of what's really needed. Um, so I would say that from a leadership perspective. Am I answering your question on that? Absolutely. Yeah. I would also say somebody who wants to get into this space is understanding all elements of a commercial organization. You can go into this early on and say, look, I've got some understanding in terms of payments, what that looks like, or I want to get more involved on the coding and get a category one or three code, that's fine. But it's also being able to be open and working with different personalities, diverse organizations, small or large, and then the external environments that are going to be more hurdles than they're not. And how you just take, how you just work within that yourself, not taking no for an answer and just keep driving. 
but learning a lot of that. And there's a lot of diversity in that, but there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of strategic development that's needed for that. So that's what I would tell tell others getting into the field. I lied. There's one tag on to this. You know, we mentioned a lot of people in sales. It seems to be a very strong foundation for getting into market access. And in market access, it really is, and reimbursement, it really is a form of sale. You just have a different buyer right? Any other primary differences? Somebody who's listening to this, who's in sales, who's like, I really want to gravitate and kind of get into market access. Any other things that they should be aware of that that's fairly different? You know, uh, it's a great question in the sense that while sales will drive a lot of personality and initiative that's needed for this role, there's also foundation that takes a while to understand. And what I mean by foundation, Mitch, is that it's important to understand how we got to where we are now based upon payment reform and what's that meant when you look at taking a device and what kind of payment you're going to get, what's going to be allowed by Medicare? How are payers going to look at that? How have they looked at it before? That's important. The regulatory side, how does the FDA approve? And then how does Medicare take that product from that point forward? That foundation is very important. I talked about being dated early on, um, but I'll tell you, it's an attribute that's helped me because it's allowed me to say, you know what? CMS looked at it this way now, but they've changed course. And now this is how they're looking at it currently, but it's also being able to understand, I understand how CMS thinks. And it's not like understanding how CMS thinks in one year. You have to understand how they thought about it in the last 20. They're government. They move slowly, right? And so I would say sales is a great attribute, but it's also get in early and understand. It's almost like Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Go back and research how Medicare looked at stuff early on and how they've changed in dealing with it now. That's just, that's just very important. It's going to be very important, even how you work with trade associations like Abimed and pushing through policies on work groups and stuff like that. It's just very important. Awesome. Well, listen, I, I love hearing your story today and I know our listeners are going to as well. I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing it with us and um, certainly wish you all the best in your continued career for sure. Appreciate the time, Mitch. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.